Okay. Um, well, this morning we're going to um, jump back into our series, Raising Dry Bones, and we're going to continue to look at riding the ship. And this week's ship, to our last one, it's the ship of stewardship. And that's always probably the, the uh, hardest one to preach. I know most people, a lot of churches preach it more often than we do here at Crossway. We don't, we don't preach on stewardship and, and giving probably as much as others. But uh, I just want you to think about this before I jump in. Is, and I said this a couple of weeks ago. What would Crossway look like if everybody gave the same effort that you gave? So if everybody gave the same effort and, 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 and uh, did the same things that you do within the body of Crossway, what would the church look like? Well, the same thing goes for stewardship. If everybody gave the same amount that you gave on a weekly basis, what would Crossway look like? Think about it. So I want to start by telling you a story. And this is a story about a father who wanted to do something real nice for his, for his five-year-old son. So he asked his son, he said, get ready, get your shoes on. We're going we're gonna to go out. I'm going to take you somewhere. And son, of course, he was happy about it. Uh, but when the dad said, um, the dad told him, he said, uh, you can pick wh- wh- anything you want. Wh- what do you want? I want to take you in to get something. What do you want? Something real special. And uh, the son could have picked anything he, want, he wanted. So he got real excited. He was jumping up and down and said he wanted McDonald's French fries. That's what he wanted. And so you got to remember, he's five years old. A lot of McDonald's French fries doesn't sound real exciting to a lot of us, but uh, he, to a five-year-old, it's, uh, it's like manna from heaven. So anyway, they go to McDonald's, and the son was expecting the dad to order him just a small order of fries, and he didn't. He ordered him a supersized order of fries and a Coke. And so he got real excited about that. And uh, the dad paid for the order. He was almost dancing. He was so excited. He couldn't wait to sit down. He couldn't hardly wait for his dad to say grace. He just, he could not wait for those French fries before he started digging into them. And as soon as his dad got done praying, he started eating the French fries and he was just so happy just sitting there in his own world, just as happy as he could be. And of course, watching him being so happy over something just so simple as McDonald's French fries, the dad was overcome with joy. He had he was overcome with emotion and joy watching his son be something or be so happy over something so simple. So he was thinking to himself, how easy was that? How in the how easy was that? It didn't cost much to bring happiness and joy to my son. So caught up in the moment, he reached over. He was going to take him a couple of fries, the dad. And he was kind of shocked when his son jerked it back and covered it up. He's uh-uh, get your own. These are mine. And he was shocked. He was. He was really taken back. He pulled back his hand. He just kind of stared at his son. And, and at that moment in time, for those couple of minutes, uh, for those couple of minutes, he had empathy um, of, of how God must feel when God reaches down for a couple of fries from us. He was thinking to himself, what in the world is this little punk thinking? I wanted a couple of fries. All, that's all I wanted was just a couple. After all, I'm the source of these fries. I'm the one who bought him. I'm the one who offered to take him out. I supersized the order so I could share with him. I paid for it and I gave it to him. And he doesn't want to share anything with me. And then he thought, why do I even want a couple of these fries? Why did I even want them? It's not like I'm hungry. And even if I was hungry, it's not like French fries are going to do anything for me. I'm an adult. They're not going to you know, make me not hungry, not a couple of them. He said, I could have bought my own. For that matter, I could have bought 10 uh, containers of fries. It's not that he needed the fries. He said, I just wanted to share in his moment of joy, and I wanted him to include me in his moment of joy. 
So one or two fries wouldn't have made a difference, but he wanted his son to invite him into the world that he had just made possible for him. The father just made possible this, this excitement and this joy over these French fries, and he wanted his son to include him in that rather than exclude him. And I think it's, it, this story is just it's, it's such a parallel, good way to parallel what, what goes wrong with our stewardship. God's given us all this, meta, uh, it, it, like this metaphorical order of fries. Some of us have small orders. Some of us have large orders. Some of us have supersized orders. But God has given every one of us things. And just like the dad, God, God desires to sit down at the table and he desires to fellowship and connect with us. When he reaches over to you some of the blessings he's already freely given us, more times than not, we say, no, these are mine. Get your own God. And he's the one that's given them to us. So it hurts God. I mean, like I said, it's not like God needs our things. He doesn't need anything. He's made all things. He's made us. He gives us strength and enable, he enables us to find employment. He prospers us in so many ways. So when God doesn't ask us, uh, so God doesn't ask us to give because he's needing or because he's hurting. He could, he could just utter the word and there would be anything he desires. Why does he ask us to give? Think about it. Why does God want from what he's already given us? If he doesn't need it, why does he ask us to give? Well, he asks us to give because he wants to, to find the joy of what it means. He wants us to find the joy of what it means to become just like him. He wants to share in the joy that he's already provided us. He wants to share in that with us. So turn to Chronicles 29, or 1 Chronicles 29. That's where we're going to be at today. 1 Chronicles 29. And when you get there, stay in. First Chronicles 29. We're going to start in verse 1. The King David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, who alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great for the temple. For the, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now, with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones of, the, of anatomy, and stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones, and alabaster in abundance. And moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple, namely 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings of gold for the things of gold and the silver for the things of silver, that is, for all of the work done by the craftsman who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord. Then the rulers of the fathers households and the prince of tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and, and of, of thousands and of hundreds with the overseers over the king's work offered willingly and for the service 
for the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of brass and 100,000 talents of iron. And whomever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in care of Jehiel of Gershonite. The, then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly for they made their offering to the, to the Lord with the whole heart, and King David also rejoiced greatly. So David blessed the Lord in sight of all of the assembly, and David said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is a great is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, O our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from thee, and from thy hand we have given thee. For we are sojourners before thee, and tenants as all our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. Our Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build thee a house for thy holy name, for thy holy name it is from thy hand. And all is thine. Since I know, O oh my God, that thou triest the heart and delightest in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all of these things. So now, with joy, I have seen thy people who are present here make their offerings willingly to thee. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of thy people and direct their heart to thee and give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, that thy testimonies and thy statutes and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all of the assembly, now bless the Lord your God and all of the assembly bless the Lord, the God of their fathers and bowed low and did, and did homage to the Lord and to the king. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, we thank you for all that you have provided. Lord, we come to you today humble. Lord, we thank you for your word and what you have given us in your word to study today. But Lord, we thank you for all of the provisions you've made in all of our lives. And I pray today that we learn that all things come from you. You own it all. You've made it all. You provided it all. And Lord, I pray that, that, that we have hearts, giving, generous hearts to give back not only to you, but to those around us. Because that's why you give us, that's why you provide to us, so that we would be givers, joyful givers. And Lord, I pray we learn that through this message today. I ask you to bless this time now. Bless it, bless it, bless it now, Lord, so that you get all of the glory. It's in Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. So, David and, and, and the men in this chapter that gave, they, they had it right. They had all of this right. God prospered them. God, God gave to them. God prospered them. And it was their absolute joy to share with God and, and, and offer 
more to him, offer more back to God. And rather than looking at every word in the chapter this morning, I'm just going to give a quick overview of these 20 verses. Uh, and, and we're going to look at 15 things. And I know 15 points seem like a lot, but we're going to move through them pretty quickly. Uh, but these 15 things, right ways of engaging in stewardship that are better than the, than the son hoarding all those French fries. All right. So uh, these will go pretty fast. The first one is the right perspective, the right perspective. It's a God-centered perspective. That's the right perspective. And so the, the, the first right attitude is this God-centered perspective. Verse 1 says, the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. And when we look at uh, David's prayer later on in the chapter, we see that David extends this principle to everything in life. Not just the temple that they're collecting for, that Solomon's going to be building, but it's, it's for everything. Look at verse 11. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So David, David had a God-centered perspective. He had a right perspective, a God-centered one. And, and, and so, so his perspective was, was relating to what he had and what he gave, what he kept and what he gave. The son with the French fries had, a, had an attitude that excluded his dad and it, and it hurt his dad's feelings. So it was, and, and it wasn't because the, the dad needed the French fries, but it was because basically the son had a false view of reality that broke relationship and broke fellowship. All right. In reality, that's what happened. And so in the same way, we have a false view of reality when we lack stewardship, when we lack a right, uh, a, a God centered uh, perspective on our giving. It's false because God owns absolutely everything. And so if we if we feel like, you know, a little selfish in giving back to God and giving back to the people of God, then our, then our view is false. Romans eleven thirty six says, "For him and through him and to him are all things. To whom glory, to, to whom be the glory forever." Amen. So he's saying that because of the God centered fact that absolutely everything we do, everything we do needs to be done to the glory of God, or we're failing to be stewards of God. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Most of us have memorized that verse. Anybody know it offhand? First Corinthians ten thirty one. Therefore, whether you, whatever you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But it's so easy to act, to act as if that can't possibly include cutting your grass or blowing leaves in the fall or, or programming a radio station or, or seeing patients and, and, and doctoring patients and teaching kids how to add and subtract. We, we look at these things and, and we don't think that it can possibly include those things. But what we fail to realize is Scripture doesn't give exceptions that we can push back God back from. It includes absolutely everything. Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Absolutely everything. In Colossians 3.23, Paul was talking to the slaves who may well have hated their work and they may have seen no purpose for it. But not only did God or Paul give them purpose, he told them, Colossians 3.23, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Do it to the Lord, not to men. He wanted them, whether they were sweeping the floor or cleaning the bathrooms, do it as to the Lord, not to men. And so how do we do it? How do we, how do we everything we do, how, do we, how are we constantly have a God-centered focus? How does that happen? We, there's no way that we've got enough time to go in that much depth this morning. 
There's absolutely no way. But but I'll give you a first step uh, that, that really has helped me. And I would encourage every one of you to read the book, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. I don't know if you if you've read it, if you have it, it's fairly cheap. You can buy it. Uh, even especially an ebook for a couple of bucks, uh, but but you can order it from Amazon, pretty cheap, less than ten dollars. Practicing the presence of God by uh, by Brother Lawrence, and it, it's hard to implement. I'm going to go ahead and be upfront to you. It's hard to implement, but but the more you have a continual sense of God's presence in your life, the easier it will be to do everything to His glory, and that's what true stewardship. Uh, the ability to, to, to help you to become a true steward is, is having a continual sense of the presence of God in your life. And you might, I'm going to be honest with you in this book, if you, if you do take my advice and buy the book and read the book and try to implement the book in your life, you're going to be tempted to give up. You're going to be tempted to quit. But if you stick through it after a few weeks, it's, it's achievable. It really is achievable in your life. Stick with it. And listen, you can actually spend your whole life living before the face of God. And that sounds like something impossible to do, but you can spend your whole life living before the face of God. And when you do, these next points we're going to go through become a whole lot easier in your life. All right. So that's that's point number one. Here's point number two. The right degree of effort. The right degree of effort. Look at verse number two. Now, for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might. Gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. Look what David said. He said, I have prepared with all my might. So he had the right degree of effort. The right degree of effort. He didn't do just enough to skate by in life. And it takes the first point and, and, and it makes us it makes us even more so want to do the second point. Right? We have to see that a reason to do things before we're motivated to do them with all of our strength. Does that make sense? We have to see a reason to do things before we're motivated to do them with all of our strength. And it's usually because God's given us enjoyment in what we're doing. That's usually when that happens. That, 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 that's one of the reasons, and we'll see it later in the chapter, but David's enjoyment of the Lord is the key to his stewardship. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You won't ever have the strength to do things with all your effort unless you first have joy in, in the Lord. And you won't ever have daily joy in the Lord unless you learn to constantly live out point number one. See, it's point number one that enables us to fulfill uh, so much in our lives. Point number one, it enables us to fulfill Ecclesiastes 9.10. Y'all remember that? Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your strength. So in order for us to fulfill that, it's point number one that enables us to do that. All right, here's point number three. I said we're going to move quickly through these. Here's point number three, the right direction of David's affections. The right direction of David's affections. So it's not just his mind, which we see in point one, or his will, which we see in point two, but it's also his emotions, which is what we see here in point three. All three are connected. If David was mindlessly doing work because, because some tyrant told him to, then it would have produced just back-breaking labor. 
That's all that would have happened. But because he was so gripped by purpose that he knew that it would be that he would he knew it would be pleasing to God, then God and David are in this purpose together. They're in it together, and it gives him a direction in life. So verse 3 says, Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of God, I have given. Because I have set my affection on the house of God, I have given. And then it gives a list of all that he gave. All these things, he's given all of these things. So his emotions, his affections drove his giving. And Jesus says that our affections and our emotions have a great deal to do whether we're stewards or not. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So as David's heart was, was set on seeking God's temple because he wanted to please God. And that's exactly what we see in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It says that our affections should be set upon pleasing God. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So where's your affection? Where is your affection? Or as, or as Jesus put it, where do you, what, what, what do you treasure the most? Because that's going to have a huge impact on whether your stewardship is joyful or not. Honestly. So these first, these, these first three points show the connection of the mind, the will, and the emotions of stewardship. All right, so think back to the, to the little boy with the French fries. Now in his mind, his five-year-old mind, and emotion, his, his mind and his emotions, they were focused on the physical thing in front of him, the creation. They were focused on the French fries. And so that makes the French fries what? An idol. That's what it makes it. It makes the French fries an idol. They were clearly an idol. And, and, and from, from Adam's time, Adam and Eve's time to now, idols have a tendency to ruin relationships between humans and God. So we've seen the right perspective, the right degree of effort, and the right direction of our affections. Let's move on. Point number four. The right kind of measurement, the right kind of measurement, which is going the extra mile. So this point is showing us that stewardship's not a dead, calculated math formula. That's not giving. That's not stewardship. When we say we got to give 10 percent here or, you know, or, or, you know, we have to tithe 10 percent. That's not true biblical stewardship. Right. It's not some calculated math formula. That's the way the Pharisees looked at tithing. They were so precise in their tithing that they waited out to the T, right? I can guarantee you they didn't give 9.9%. They didn't give 10.1%. They gave 10% to the T. And they were going to be exactly exact in their giving. And so Jesus said that their giving lacked justice and mercy and faith. He said that in Matthew 23. And in Luke 11, he said their tithing lacked love. So there's a logical order to the way the Holy Spirit has laid out this chapter in 1 Chronicles. Because true stewardship flows from the first three points. And even though true stewardship flows from those th first three points, the thing that drives it is love. Love drives going the extra mile. And David, David definitely went the extra mile. If you see in verses 3 to 5, he said, Moreover, because I have set my affections on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. Do you see that? Did you catch that? He said, over and above. 
So he had already prepared for the house, but, but he was so moved to give above and beyond that. He was going the extra mile. You know, I like to see believers giving. I do. I like to see when all believers give, but, but giving above and beyond the tithe and blessing others and blessing the kingdom. I think, I think Crossway, we do that. I think we have, we have been very generous in some areas. And that shows the, the working of the Spirit among us. It really does. And, and then if you look back at the illustration that, that we started with, with the, the, the father and the son and the French fries, the dad was generous with his son. Right? He went over and above and gave him more than the child was even expecting. And, and, and he wanted the son to learn that being generous and giving could be fun, too. He wanted his son to be more like him, to be hospitable. And I'm going to be honest with you. God doesn't want us pinching pennies. I know some of us squeak when we walk, but God doesn't want us pinching pennies with Him or with other people in His kingdom. That's not His desire for us. He doesn't want us, He doesn't even want us offering to share our french fries, but with a bad attitude. You know, if you share with somebody and you think, oh, I'm going to be nice and I'm going to share with Vicky, man, I hope she don't take too much. I'm not going to say, you know, you can only have two. But I really hope she only takes one or break it one in half. <laughs> if you have that attitude, you might as well not give to begin with. God wants God wants such a genuine change in our hearts that it's our joy to give above and beyond because that's spirit given stewardship. All right. Point number five, the right consecration, the right consecration. Look at verse 5. David asks a question that connects consecration with stewardship. He says, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? And they all wanted to consecrate themselves to the Lord. Keep reading. It, 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 was, it was the same kind of generous giving that David had shown. They all gave the same way. And so giving can be a test of whether we're consecrated or not. But, but not just any giving. It's the kind of giving... The given that's demonstrated by these 15 points that we're going over. See, it's easy for us to, to fool ourselves into thinking that we're better off than, than what we actually are. A lot of times we think we're better off than we are. We might think that we're really consecrated to God, but, but the 15 points we're looking at may show that our consecration is really not that good. The word consecration means set apart. Look at these, look at these 15 points. And, and, and as we go through them, don't think of them so much as, as, as adding, one, adding them one at a time to your life. But look at them like 15 windows into your heart. That's the way they should be looked at. 15 windows into your heart. And, it's, and if your heart is a, is a heart that's changed by God, you've got these 15 windows looking in. And if one or two are broken, then your heart starts to get cold. Because the air gets in and it starts to chill off what should be on fire for the Lord. So let me say it like this, and I know people don't like to be told this, but our consecration is measured by our stewardship. It's honest to goodness true. So that means if we're not giving, then some other points of our lives could be questioned. It's the truth. All right, here's the next one, point six, the right result. The right result. So what's a right result of these first five points? Well, it should be a culture of giving, a culture of giving. The next thing we see is this is this. Um, the joy of giving should spread amongst us in this church like a virus. There should be a culture of giving that, that is being developed. 
Look at verses 6 to 8. They describe the right result. It says, Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze and 1,000 or 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. One of the, uh, so one of the signs of, of being joyful in your giving or being enthusiastic of your giving is a desire for other people to be stewards. So if, I, if I'm excited about my giving, I want you to, to be excited about your giving too. So if we're excited about serving God through our giving, then we want this culture in our church, we want others to be the same way. We want this to rise up in the church and to be contagious amongst us all. Generosity needs to be contagious. And I believe that, that, that we've caught here within Crossway, we've caught some of that spirit of generosity and the way we give to, to missionaries and, and people in need. We do that here. We do. We, we give to Amir every month. We give to, to other missionaries. We just sent money to, to Ecuador. And, and we send money to Pakistan every month. We give to people uh, and, and, and we help people in need. We had the lady that walked in off the street that Wednesday night. We as a body gave to her. We as a church gave to her. No questions asked. But I want to point out something too. This giving was publicly done. It wasn't in secret. Now, I'm, uh, Jesus engaged in public charity and he also engaged in private charity. So why did Jesus... In the Sermon on the Mount, why did he encourage giving where your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing? Why did he encourage also praying secretly in your prayer closet where nobody could see you? He did it not because public prayer is wrong or public giving is wrong. He did it because most of the things in the Sermon on the Mount were a test of, of whether what we do is manufactured by our flesh or by the Spirit. So if you hunger for prayer, even when nobody's around, it's an evidence that the Holy Spirit's driving you to pray, right? It's not social expectations that are driving you to pray, but it's the Holy Spirit driving you to pray if you pray when nobody else is around, right? If you, it doesn't exclude public prayer, it tests, it tests the character of it. Same way with giving, it's the same point. It's the point that um, uh, if we give generously when no one knows that we've given and we get zero credit for it, then it's an evidence that the Holy Spirit's producing our stewardship rather than social expectations. Rather than me coming up here and saying, we all should be given and we see you drop your money in the plate every week. That's, you know, even though that's, that's biblical, sometimes social expectations can drive that, right? But if you're given privately as well as publicly, that's a test that the Holy Spirit. So secret giving is a great test. It doesn't exclude public tithing or public giving. It just tests the character of it. So I want to, real quick, before we move on, I want to comment on this, because uh, this kind of threw me off. I told Melissa about it yesterday as I was going through the final time through the, through the sermon. I, just, I was just curious, you know, because we can skip over this so much because, and not even, we see that this was an enormous amount of money given that day. But do we know how much? I was curious about it. So I looked it up. The text says they gave, uh, that David gave 3,000 talents of gold. And so a talent of gold was about 75 pounds. That was 225,000 pounds of gold that David gave. And so that's 3.6 million one ounce gold pieces. 
3.6 million. He also gave 7,000 talents of silver, which is about 525,000 pounds of silver or 8.4 million silver pieces. It's a lot of money. But then the others, they were generous, just as generous. They gave 375,000 pounds of gold, 750,000 pounds of silver, and a ton of bronze and a ton of iron. And so when you add it all up, just in silver and gold alone, not the wood and the iron and the stones and all that other stuff, just in silver and gold alone, do you know how much was given in today's money? I looked this up and calculated in today's money. Almost $13 billion of resources, just in silver and gold. $13 billion, with a B, billion dollars in one offering for the temple, in one offering. That's an amazing offering to be taken in one day. Now, you might think, well, that's too much money for one project or too much money for one cause. But think of it this way. They, they had it to give. They had it to give. God had blessed them so much, incredibly blessed them. And so in naturally, God loves to bless those with stewards' hearts. And he blesses people with stewards' hearts more and more and more and more. They had it to give, so they gave. And one of the weird things that I never really understood and, and, and y'all may see this in your own lives with people that you know, but, but um, most people tend to give a smaller and smaller percentage of their income as they begin to make more and more money. I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen it. More and more people make, the more and more people get raises in their lives and, and, and move up uh, in their lives, they start to give less and less to the church. Wealthy people tend to give less than those who, who, who can't, you would look at and say they can't afford to give as much as they, as much as these wealthy people. And so here's a true story I want to tell you about this. Uh, Peter Marshall, he was a former chaplain of the, of, of the U.S. Senate. He said a man came to him one day and he said, uh, I have a problem. He said, I've been, I've been tithing for a long time. He said, it wasn't too bad when I was making $20,000 a year. I could afford to give up to $2,000. But now that I'm making $500,000 a year, there's no way I can give away $50,000 a year. And so Peter Marshall did not give the guy any advice. He just said, uh, I see that you have a problem. He said, can I pray for you? Can we pray about it? And the guy said, yeah, we can pray. And so uh, Dr. Marshall bowed his head and he prayed. He said, dear Lord, this man has a problem and I pray that you'll help him. Please reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. <laughs> but, but wealthy people who, who no doubt already give uh, here in this text, we see wealthy people, these leaders, they're, they're, they're leaders in, the, in, in, in their areas. They no doubt already give the three tithes of the Old Testament. So they, they had to give. They didn't just give a 10 percent tithe. They gave the first 10 percent, which was uh, given, uh, which was yearly given to the synagogue. Then the second 10 percent was yearly spent on, the, on your family. And if you could afford it on others to go to Jerusalem. And then the third 10 percent was given once every three years to the poor. And it was usually a lump sum of money that was saved up for three years. And, uh, and it was given to a poor, poor person to help them get a, a head start, a good start in life. And so they were given already 23 and a third percent of their total income. Already these leaders were. But here they were, just like David, going the extra mile, giving above and beyond. $13 billion worth in one offering. That's amazing. But they had it to give. <clears throat> And they gave it. They joyfully gave it. They didn't hold on to it. They joyfully gave it. Y'all ever heard of William Colgate? He's the guy that started Colgate Toothpaste. 
Same guy. He, he started a toothpaste company. He was similar. His heart was, was so captured by God, forgiven, that he, that he wanted to give more and more and more and more. Uh, and, it's, and like I said before, it's kind of rare for wealthy people to do that. But when he started out, he had nothing, absolutely nothing. He didn't even have a place to live when he started making Colgate toothpaste. But he always gave the first 10% to the Lord in everything uh, that he earned before he paid any bills, before anything, he gave the first 10% to God. And as the Lord prospered him, and as he became more wealthy, he gave 20%, then 30%, then 40%. That just doesn't be, seem to be the norm today. It doesn't seem to be the normal thing that we see. I know uh, a few people that I know are really, really, really well off who will give excuse after excuse after excuse for why they don't give to the church. And that shows that, that we need revival. We need revitalization, not just in our church, but in America and in this culture. We need revival. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to give us all stewards hearts. That's what we need. All right, here's the next point. Verse 7, the right joy. The right joy. So looking at the right result in verse 9, others got caught up in the, in the joy of giving. It says, Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because it was a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also greatly rejoiced. So the son with the french fries missed the point, and he missed out in the joy of sharing with his dad. And so it resulted in this diminished joy of his dad as well. Not only did he miss out on the joy of sharing, but his dad missed out on the joy because the boy didn't share. And so it's like it infects us. The joy in real giving is infectious. It's like this infectious joy. And so there's also a loss of joy in those who don't have stewards' hearts. But so many times we're calculated and we're stingy in our giving. And so we lose out on that joy. Listen to what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 9, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's basically saying that the, the kid who has fun sharing with his dad will more likely have a dad who takes him out for french fries more often. Does that make sense? So he missed out on that. Um, the spiritual son who has joy in sharing with God and, and, and God's people finds that God is God's delighting in, the, in their giving more and more and more and he gives more and more and more into their lives so they, can, so they can give more and more and more. Does that make sense? So the more we give, the more God delights in it. The more we have joy in our giving, the more God delights in it and the more God gives us to give. Paul goes on to say, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, he says, So let each one of us, as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." Now he may now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything uh, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. 
So what that's saying is when we catch this joy that comes with being generous and this generous giving, then, then, then we move into a whole new spectrum, a whole new world in our spirituality. Our spiritual life enters a whole new place when we, when we catch this joy of being generous in our giving. And you can't catch God's generous heart and not be positively impacted. Your life will be positively impacted once you catch the joy that you receive from giving and giving generously. All right, here's the next point, verse eight or, or point eight, the right honor, the right honor. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, therefore, David blessed the Lord before, before all of the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. So those who are good stewards, those who are good givers aren't boasters. They don't boast in their giving. They don't boast in what they've done. They don't say, look, look what I've done. I've given X amount of dollars this year to my church and I've helped all these people with all of these needs that they have. Look at me. Let's post pictures on Facebook of all my giving and all of the good deeds that I do. While they may be honest about their giving, the goal is to honor and glorify God. What did David do? David didn't say, look at what I've given. He says, he said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. It's a joy to honor and praise God through our giving. So when we're joyful stewards, we're, we're always looking for ways to honor God. We don't have to be asked, right? We've got, we've got eyes that are, that are looking for ways to give, right? When we get, imp- when we get impacted through joyful giving, we, we look for ways to give because we want that joy that comes from giving, Right. We want to respond to the needs of others because we have it and God has blessed us in order to give it. And that's the kind of culture that we want to create here at Crossway. Right. I, am I speaking for myself or am I speaking for everybody? Yeah, We want to create a generous, generous culture of giving here at Crossway. All right. Here's the next one. Point nine is the right steward heart. So when we have all of that, when we have all of these things, that all of these points added up to right at this point, then you have a steward's heart that can say in verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So a true steward sees nothing belonging to himself. A true steward sees nothing as belonging to himself. We're not like the son that's protecting the French fries, right? If God wants one of his own French fries, we offer them to him, right? We say, here, here, father, take more, take more. But a a steward, we understand a true biblical steward is there for God, not for himself. The definition of steward is one that is managing somebody else's property, right? And so a real true steward understands that he's there for God and not for himself, so we can't measure, we can measure to what extent uh, that we're in a right relationship with God or where our relationship is. We can measure that by our giving. That's, that's just the truth. If you don't tithe, if you don't give, then you haven't even gotten to the starting line of being a good steward. And that's the truth. That's the truth. <clears throat> tithing, is, um, tithing proves that we're stewards. And giving above and beyond shows that God's heart has captivated our heart more and more and more. We want to be more like our father and less like the son with the French fries. 
I should have gave him a name. So I wasn't just saying the son with the french fries the whole time. I should have gave him a name. French Fry Freddy, that's what I'll call him. Y'all can laugh, it's okay. All right, point 10, the right faith for the future. The right faith for the future. So this, 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 this generous giving, this generous culture, not only in, in the body of Crossway, but in our own individual lives, this should give us faith for our future rather than fear. And let me explain that. Let me explain what that means. When people first start giving, they don't know usually how they're going to make ends meet. You ever see new believers and they learn one of the things that they start to learn is they begin to grow in their faith that they need to be given to the church and there's, there's an expectation there. But a lot of times... A lot of these people don't know how they're going to make ends meet. I, I can't take a you know ten percent or a certain amount of percentage for my income. I can't afford to give that to somebody to the church. So they have this fear. They they can't make ends meet. They fear that if they pay God first, the first ten percent of the, what they make, if they pay that bill to God, they look at it like a bill, then their life's going to start to unravel and come apart. But they forget that God is the one who governs everything, and He's the one that will bless their life. And the fear is the exact opposite of faith. The exact opposite of faith is fear. So when you fear things, usually they tend to happen. That's the truth. That is the absolute truth. My wife back there is scared to death of her car. And every time she gets in it and there's something wrong with it, she feels like there's something wrong with it. Guess what? Something becomes wrong with it. When you fear something, it tends to happen. She just wants a new car. But, but when, when you have faith in God's promises, guess what? They always happen too. Did you hear me? When you have faith in God's promises, those always happen too. But fear demands to be fulfilled just like faith does. In, in, in Haggai, if you've ever studied the book of Haggai, he, um, the community was facing uh, times of famine and they were facing financially difficult times. They were, they were tempted to, to, in that book, they were tempted to skip the tithe until things got better. And they probably thought, well, I'll catch up with God later. Well, you know, when things get better, I'll start giving to God again. And Haggai told them absolutely that they had it all backwards. So, so the reason for poor times was because they weren't putting God first in their finances. That's what he told them. He said in Haggai, he said, you haven't sown much. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he, and he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. You look for much, but indeed it came too little. And when you brought it home, it blew, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because my house, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house, therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruits. That's powerful. And faith understands that. Fear doesn't understand it. Faith understands it. Faith doesn't doubt when doubt the wisdom of following God because God controls all of life. Faith does what God requires no matter what the consequences are. Faith pays God the first fruits, not the leftovers. We don't give God what's left over after we pay the bills. Faith gives God the first 10% or the first whatever is right for you uh, before we get into anything else. That, that's what faith does. Faith, um, faith pays God the 10% off the top of the check and trusts God to give us the wisdom, wisdom to pay the rest of the, of the bills in our life. 
So faith doesn't do what, what, what French Fry Freddy did. Faith doesn't do what the son with the fries did. Faith knows God's generous. It's a trust issue, right? It's a trust issue. God's generous. God's generous. And David expresses his full trust in God's goodness and generosity. Look in verse 12. He says, both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all. Your hand is powerful. Your hand is power and might. And in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. So in effect, he was saying, God, Lord, you hold, you gave me these French fries. You hold them in your hand and I'll share them with you. Don't give them for me to hold. You, you, you take them back. You hold them and enjoy them with me. And, and thank you for being such a generous and giving God. That's what that means. So, so the son, the story, the, the son illustrates the difference between excitement. He was excitement, but it wasn't true joyful excitement. It was a selfish excitement. It wasn't true gratitude. So he was excited about his French fries that he was almost dancing, right? He was so excited about them. And that may seem like gratitude, but it's not. It's counterfeit. See, he loved the gift more than he loved the giver. And so it robbed him of any ability to bring joy to his dad in that situation. But look at the gratitude that, that David has. Verse 13. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Well, I'm sorry, I moved on to, ver- to, to, to point 11. The right gratitude. I'm sorry. So he says in 1 Chronicles 29, 13, this is the gratitude that David had. He said, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. So David's not waiting for a thank you from God for all of this offering that they gave to him. He's just given billions and billions of dollars to God. He thanks God for the privilege of being able to give it to him. That's, that's part of God's plan. So David knew he was blessed by God. And because God blessed his life, he was able to offer so much back to God. So he thanked God for the ability to give him so much. He would have made all of the difference in the world if the, if the son had pushed the french fries a little closer to his dad and said, thanks, dad. I love going out with you. Let's, let's eat these french fries together. Had it made all the difference in the world. So that was the right gratitude. Here's number 12, the right humility. The right humility. And, and, and that gratitude takes humility, right? To having that gratitude takes humility. Verses 14 to 16 show humility in David's heart. It says, but who am I and who are my people that we should go and be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and your own we have given you. And of your own we have given you. But for we are aliens and pilgrims before you. As were our fa- all our fathers, our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. Our Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. So he realized, David realized that what he was offering to God was what God had already given him. He's not giving of his own. He's not being... His, not, his arm wasn't twisted to, to reach into his pocket and give something that he earned or made on his own. He realized that what he had came from God and what he was given to God was what he had already been given by God. The cycle of, giving, uh, the cycle of, of God given to David and David given to God and God given more and more was, a prim, was primarily a relationship cycle of love. It's not like a casino slot machine cycle of selfishness. right? You give more and more and more thinking it's going to pump out. That's, that's not how this was. So this all demonstrates point number one, that David was God-centered. 
not self-centered. He wasn't man-centered. He wasn't creation-centered. And all that takes humility. All that takes being humble. So a cross-centered view of life has the I crossed out. It's not about me. It's not about myself. It's all about the most awesome relationship that you can have with God. The most awesome relationship that you can ever imagine. It's a relationship with the creator of all things, the creator of everything that you have. That's what, well, that's what true stewardship is. And I hope you're catching that as we go through this. Number 13, the right perspective on stuff. The right perspective on stuff. So David's view of stuff, can we can see that in, in verse 15. Uh, and I just read that, but let me read it again. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. So in effect, David's realizing that our lives on earth, just a tiny blip on the radar screen of, of, of life, of eternal life. What we do here during our time, just a small, small scale. And the stuff that we have in our lives can disappear like a shadow. You can lose your house, you can lose your job, your retirement, your savings, your car, your boat, your camper, your four-wheeler, your life, and everything else. You can lose it all. And so the most fundamental reason to, to, to save money or to lay up money on earth is not, not for security. It's not. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand that. There's nothing wrong with saving money. There's nothing wrong with saving for retirement or saving for emergencies. But if the savings become your treasure or security or comfort become your treasure, then you've totally missed the point. The point is to find joy in serving God, whether he gives you a lot or whether he gives you a little. Serving God with every dime that we make. That's the point. All right, here's 14. We're almost done. The right heart attitudes. The right heart attitudes. So when we look at 17 through 19, there's, you, can, you can see a lot of heart attitudes displayed in the words. See if you catch them as I read through 17 through 19. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all of these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made a provision. So David's, the attitude of his heart was right. And it was reflected in how he handled his money. Have y'all seen that, that, that bumper sticker uh, that says, uh, give if you love Jesus, any idiot can honk? I've seen one of those a couple of weeks ago. So <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I, <laughs> yeah. Um, your finances are really a test of your heart. It is. No, Jesus talked about money a lot. He talked about giving a lot. So give if you love Jesus. Any idiot can honk. The right kind of worship. Here's number 15. That's our last one. The right kind of worship. We talked about worship last week and we'll end with it this week. 
And the right kind of worship is a worship that flows from stewardship. Chapter 1 of, of the book of Job, we see a, an incredibly wealthy man. And he's driven to worship. An incredibly wealthy man driven to worship. But when everything's taken away, what do we see? We see an incredibly poverty-stricken man, an incredibly poor man, stripped of everything, hurting, and he's still driven to worship. Job 1.20 says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So when we worship in difficult circumstances, then it reflects the degree to which we have stewards' hearts. Look at verse 20, 1 Chronicles 29. Then David said to all of the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all of the assembly blessed the Lord God for, of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and before their king. So what, what does it mean to be flat on your faces before God? That's the very heart of worship. To be prostrate, flat on your face before God. The, closer, the closest anyone came to seeing God in Scripture was when they were prostrate before Him. And we see that a lot in, in Revelation. We see that the people are falling on their knees, prostrate before God in Revelation. And face down worship, really it's an overflow of a heart that's humbled and amazed by the glory of God. So it's easy to be a steward when you're overwhelmed with God's worth and you're overwhelmed with your own unworthiness. It's easy to give at that point. When you're overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the glory of God and you fall on your face and worship God, it's easy to reach into your pocket and just throw out everything and give to God because that's where it came from. It's easy to give when you know God's been generous with you. So it's my prayer as we close that, that, that every one of us would be cured of this French fry syndrome that we saw. And that every one of us would be so overwhelmed with the goodness and the generosity that it's the natural desire for us to say, here, Lord, have some more. Take it all if you want it. What else can I go get for you? That's what I want us to be like. That's what I want Crossway to look like. That's what each one of us should desire to be like in our lives. I pray God's heart that, that, that we know the heart that we have is overflowing with generosity, that it, that it changes our heart and makes steward, generous steward, stewards out of us. And that's the permanent culture of Crossway Baptist Church. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you for, for, for the generosity that you have shown in my life. And I pray, Lord, that, that my heart and in my heart that I, that I desire to give more and more and more of what you've given me. See, it's not mine. I might go out and labor for it, but guess what? You gave me the job to labor at. You gave me the body to be able to do the labor. See, every bit of it comes from you. And I need to recognize that. I pray that, as, as, that all of us recognize everything that we have comes from you. And so it's not about how much that we give. It's about how much are we keeping from you and why are we keeping it from you. Lord, I pray that we understand where it comes from, the source of all things, and why generosity and giving is so important to you. Because it's how we are going to grow your kingdom. Lord, we love you. We give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. We ask you to pour your Holy Spirit out now and touch hearts this morning as the gospel is proclaimed. Lord, we love you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.